Well, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Joel. Book of Joel in chapter number two. Book of Joel in chapter number two. Now, I want to share with you just a moment what we're going to do. Now, this morning, we're going to look at uh, uh, a section of chapter two uh, that deals with God's um, telling Israel about a coming judgment. Now, and then tonight, we're going to come back and we're going to look. Now, once they have come prepared for that judgment, uh, what are the glorious blessings that come out of that? Now, the essence of this passage is the essence of repentance. Now, but I want you to understand, he's writing to his people. And he's writing to his people about a time um, in which they need to come to a place of turning to him, being the Lord. And I'll explain that as we go through. But I, but I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I, I believe what God was saying in that day is what he's trying to say today. And, and we need to be listening to what God has to say. And listen, God speaks through circumstances. And, and we need to be alert to that truth that God many times speaks through circumstances. Now, with that being said, you stand in reverence to the reading of God's word. Joel chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness, of gloominess, a day of clouds, and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, the great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the light, neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Father, I just ask that you would just, in a supernatural and mighty way, would you articulate these truths in a way to us that Father would sound the alarm in our hearts, help us to be discerning of our times and the day in which we live. Father, I pray you would build upon the truth we've looked on the last couple Sundays. And Father, I pray that you'd glorify yourself in working truth in us and through us for your honor, your glory, and your namesake in Jesus' holy, precious, and mighty name. And all God's children said, amen. You may be seated. Well, let me give you the backdrop of this passage. Now, the backdrop of this passage, I believe, will become abundantly clear of why I believe the Lord has put this upon my heart this morning. The backdrop of this passage is Israel has lived for several years under the authority of King Uzziah. And King Uzziah was a great victorious king. Now, in so, he had captured lots of land for Israel. And Israel had begun to prosper unlike a time in its history. Most Bible scholars will say the only time that they probably prospered as much as they were prospering when this was penned was probably during the time of Solomon. But most Bible scholars will agree that even now they are prospering even more than that. Economically, they had everything they wanted. From an agricultural standpoint, remember, most of their livelihood was from farming. And agriculturally, their barns were full, their crops were, were fruitful, the, the ground was fertile, and everything was absolutely 
going amazing. And what was happening is they began to get comfortable in their prosperity. And as they got comfortable in their prosperity, their hearts began to turn away from the Lord, as it is done many times throughout the Old Testament. And they began to get comfortable with their barns being full and comfortable with their crops being fruitful and comfortable with their livelihood being affluent. And now everything they would need physically is now here, but yet they forgot one thing, that every good gift comes from above. And they had forgotten the fact that it was only because of God that they had what they had. It was only because of the Lord they enjoyed what they enjoyed. And they turned their hearts away from the Lord. And as they did, God sent judgment to wake them up in chapter 1. Does that sound like America before COVID? What did God do? Well, in chapter 1, he sent a judgment that symbolized in locusts. And this judgment that came upon Israel, the northern and the southern kingdom. This, this judgment began to strip away all their crops. And now everything that made them comfortable, everything that gave them a materialistic peace, God has now began to take away from them. And to the point that now God would not even allow them to bring sacrifices. God took away their ability to bring sacrifices unto him and worship and praise. In other words, they had everything they wanted. They could scratch their religious itch by bringing a sacrifice. They could go to the barns and find them full. They had everything they wanted. And God began to take it away little by little by little. Let me ask you a question. Those two months we weren't able to meet, did you ever think you would see that day come? That we couldn't come together and worship the Lord, bring our sacrifice of praise unto Him. And so all this that we've seen take place and is still taking place, here's the question we need to ask. Is it by happenstance? Or is it by the hand of God in a way that He's trying to speak loudly in our day. See, the question is not, is God trying to speak? He's always trying to speak. And he always is speaking. See, the question is, are we hearing? Are we heeding? Are we listening to what he has to say? Because here's the reality. When you get to chapter 1, you see the, a judgment that's already came upon Israel. But when you get to chapter 2, this is not a judgment that's already came upon Israel. This is a judgment that God's given them a preview about. And he's saying, listen, here is what's yet to come. And he says, now, blow the trumpets. So in other words, here's the picture. I've gave you a taste of my judging hand. Now I'm going to warn you of what's yet to come. But if you repent, maybe God will turn his hand away in judgment. Are y'all with me? That's what this passage is about. Now, here's the thing. 
We need to learn from Joel's approach in suffering. You see, a lot of times what happens when we go through difficult times, we get self-perspective. What's this doing to me? What's it costing to me? They're taking away my rights. They're interfering with my life. But see, Joel didn't have that perspective. See, Joel had the perspective that, God, you're doing this or allowing this that you can speak to us when we wasn't listening before. See, we take a trivial approach towards circumstances. There's only one time in the Bible, speaking to believers, that God says to ask for wisdom. Only one time. And you say, when is that one time that he says that? It's in James chapter 1. And what he's dealing with in James chapter 1 is tribulation, circumstances. Begin to work in our lives. God allows them in our life. And then he says, and if you lack wisdom, ask of God, and he'll give liberally and abateth not. You know, the only time God asked us for ask for wisdom is when we're going through tough times and we say, God, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to bring about? You say, why shouldn't I ask for wisdom all the time? Because the Bible says if you're saved, you have the mind of Christ. And the Bible says that if you have the mind of Christ, he begins to mold his will and his ways into your desires and into your thinking. And listen, I don't have to ask for the will of God when it comes to the course of my life. Why? Because if I'm surrendered, yielded to him, Romans 12, 1 and 2, then the will of God finds me, I don't find it. But when we're going through trials, God, what do you say? What do you say? Let me ask you a question. What is God telling you in these days? God speaks through his word. God speaks by his spirit. God speaks through circumstances. What is God saying to you in these days? You see, I believe what God's saying is exactly what he said to Israel in those days. Now you say, well, wait a minute. That's Israel. It's not, it's not Gentile. Well, listen to what Paul says. Israel was given examples unto us that we should follow thereby. And I want you to listen. Many times God was painting a picture. God was giving a prophetic utterance. God was giving us in shadow and type how God was going to deal with his church is how God dealt with Israel. Many times as Paul wrote to the church, he used Israel as examples of how God dealt with his people. You and I need to learn that how God dealt with Israel many times is how he deals with the church. So with that being said, we take a trivial approach to circumstances. Y'all ever heard the term of euthanism? I mean, let me give you an example. How many of y'all love to go to the dentist? All right, when you go to the dentist, what is the first thing they say when you get in a chair? Open your mouth wide. Now, that's a euthanism. Because really what he's saying, I'm about to do a work in you. It's not going to be pleasant. And then he follows that up. Now, this may cause a little discomfort. Now, he's sticking sticking a needle about this long in your jaw. (laughs) This may cause a little discomfort. Let me tell you what that euthanism really means. This is going to hurt. So why does he do it that way? Well, he's trying to water it down. He's making it more palatable. See, here's what we've done with all that's took place in America. We've tried to water it down and make it more palatable. Well, it's China's fault. I don't care where it came from. God's the author and God's the sovereign. 
God either allowed it or God initiated it. I don't care which country it comes from. God's trying to say something. Well, it'll go away. Well, it's not as bad for certain people. Listen, folks, I don't care if it's bad, not bad. Here's the point of the thing. We're always taking an interest perspective uh, take towards it. How about saying this? God, whatever it is, whyever it's here, and however it lasts, and whatever all this other stuff that's going on, whatever takes place in that, whatever happens in November, God, what are you trying to say? So what was God saying to Israel? All right. Well, I'm glad you asked. Y'all ready? Say amen. Look at verse 1 and 2. He speaks through the prophet Joel, and he says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. What's the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is used multiple times. It's used 20 times in the Bible. And 16 times of that usage is in the Old Testament. And what it speaks of is it speaks of a time or a period where God judges or God pulls out chastisement. Now, from a prophetic sense, here's what we take it and we understand it to mean. It's talking about a time that's from the rapture to the millennial, the time called the tribulation, where God begins to pour out judgment upon judgment upon on judgment upon this world and it's called in the new testament the day of the lord the period of the tribulation there's also what's called the day of christ or the day of jesus christ paul uses that seven times in the new testament writing to the church and here's what he says to the church he said get ready for the day of christ what is he referring to the day of christ speaks of the rapture when the bridegroom comes for the bride the day of the lord speaks of the judgment where god pours out his judgment upon this earth And Joel says, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, here's the picture. Chapter 1, he brings that that judgment that's symbolized in the locust. He begins to take away their crops. He begins to take away their ability to bring sacrifices in worship. And then in chapter 2, he says to them, he says, but Joel, listen, they've they've not heeded. They've not heard yet. He said, so blow the trumpet. And this time, blow the trumpet and say to them, listen, there's a judgment yet to come that I've not poured out yet. And it's going to be far worse than judgment in chapter 1. He said, I'm going to raise up enemy armies. And I, God, am going to lead them. You say, where do you find that? Look at verse 11. God says, God says in verse 11, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. Who's his army? The Assyrians, the Babylonians. And he said, God's going to raise his voice before the army for his camp is very great. And he is strong that executeth his word. God's going to lead an enemy people against his people. And you say, wait a minute, my God wouldn't do that. I got news for you. God will do whatever it takes to open the eyes of his children. Whatever it takes. And so what we see is the proclamation of judgment in verse 1 and 2. Now notice a couple of things about this proclamation. The understanding of Joel. So what's the understanding of Joel? Well, the understanding of Joel is this day of the Lord cometh, not came, not already come, it's coming. So in other words, here's what Joel understands. He understands it's by God, but here's what he don't understand. He don't know when it's coming, but he knows it is coming. So what he's saying is this. He says, sound the alarm for it's coming. Now listen to what I'm about to say. 
I believe that God's given us a preview with what we're going through of what's yet to come. That's going to be far worse than what we're going through. I've, had, I've heard people, I've heard a couple preachers. They've said, well, what we're going through, they believe in the church going through half or most of the tribulation. And here's what they say. Well, what we're going through is God's already bringing the church into the tribulation period. I got news for you. If you think this is the tribulation period, you better read your Bible because what happens in the tribulation period, what we're enduring now, don't hold a candle to what's yet to come. I mean, it doesn't even touch the hem of the garment of what's yet to come. If this is the tribulation period, folks, then the Bible is not telling the truth. And the Bible is always true. Always true. It is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Read Revelation. You'll find out what the tribulation is really going to be about. So what is he doing? Well, I believe what we're going through is the locust. I believe the judgment coming in Joel 2 hadn't come yet. But it's coming. But here's the thing. Just like Joel, we don't know when it's coming. Because this is a prophetic utterance. Day of the Lord. And what it's speaking of is there's coming a judgment far worse, what we would call the tribulation period. And the only hope for this world to get prepared is repent. Jesus is the only hope. Do you agree with that? Say amen. This is the understanding of Joel. Now, I want you to see secondly. Not only the only understanding of Joel, the urgency of Joel. I, I mean, know how he, how he words this. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm. What is he talking about? Well, can I tell you, he's referencing and he's talking to one individual. You say, what one individual is he talking to? The watchman on the wall of the city. Because the watchman on the wall of the city would have a trumpet, a, a if you will, a shofar. And, and that watchman on the wall would be always intently gazing out into the, into the, the mountains and the valleys that are outside the city, watching for any threatening enemy that may come their way. And as soon as they see an enemy coming over the horizon, they would blow the trumpet in warning. The trumpet was used in multiple occasions for Israel. It was used to call forward a, a festive time, like the feast in which would take place, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets. And, but it's also used to announce a word that God, what God was going to give from a prophet. But it was used, thirdly, as an announcement of an impending war. And I believe the last two is the applicable thing. God's trying to speak. Listen, because war is on the horizon. You say, what was this judgment God was going to bring? As I said, the Assyrians and Babylonians will come against the northern and the southern kingdoms and besiege that kingdoms. And literally, if you read from verse 3 down through verse 11, it's literally a scourged earth policy. In other words, they will take everything in their path. They will literally decimate everything that comes their way. And God said that's yet to come unless... You repent. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14. 
The great day of the Lord is near. It is near. Now, I'm not so smart, but if Zephaniah said that then, how much nearer are we today? And hasteth greatly, and even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall call there bitterly. The day of the Lord is wrath and a day of trouble and distress, a day of wastedness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of a trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as dust. That is what is yet to come. Now, here's the great news for the saved. We'll never have to endure the tribulation. But what about the world? What about those around us? Guys, I want you to hear me. I believe God, through circumstance, is standing on the pinnacle of the wall and blowing the trumpet to the church to get awakened in America. I believe God's speaking loud and clear. So what do we do? Well, I believe what God told Israel is what we as church in America need to do. You say, what is that? Well, notice the preparation for coming judgment. He begins in verse 12 with the message of true repentance. Now, I use the word true because he's going to expose what false and true repentance really is. But the message of true repentance, look at verse 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me. What is the message of true repentance? The urgency was blow the trumpet, sound the alarm. The message is now, 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 now. Listen, folks. If the watchman waits till he sees an army coming over the hill and then blows the trumpet, they don't have time to prepare. But listen, God's saying, listen, I'm giving you a preview. I'm giving you a heads up. He said, start sounding it now. You can't see the army yet, but it's coming. Start sounding it now. Now turn. See, most people view in America repentance as such a negative term. Oh, it's one of the most glorious, precious terms you'll ever know. You say, why is that? Let me ask you a question. What's the most precious thing for a true born-again child of God? Their fellowship with the Lord. Would you agree with that? Say amen. All right. What's the one thing that interferes with your fellowship with God? Sin. What's the only remedy for sin? Repentance. So in other words, so when we say repent, what are we saying? Hey, listen, get to the place where the most precious thing in your life as a child of God is the fellowship of God. And that fellowship is intimacy. And that fellowship is fervent because there's nothing standing between you and him. But, oh, we look so down on that word. There's churches being created. Says you can't use that word today. It's offensive. Boy, if that's offensive, if our fellowship with God is offensive, help us, Lord. Now, listen, we don't have time to wait. We do not have time to wait. It's now or it may be never. 
Let me show you the marks of true repentance. Look at verse 12. There also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. What's the marks of true repentance? Repentance involves consecration. What's consecration? Consecration is setting yourself apart unto him. And here's the picture here. He's saying to Israel, he said, listen, Israel. He said, you've got, you've got a taste of my judgment. I'm giving you a preview. I'm giving you a warning of what's yet to come. And he said, now here's, here's the only help. Here's the only hope. He said, turn your whole hearts unto me. Listen, folks, repentance is not found in you turning a part of your time or a part of your affection or a part of your love or a part of your being to him. Repentance is found when you and I turn from self, turn from sin, and turn utterly, completely, totally unto him. You say, well, preacher, I don't know all my sin. You don't. There's sins of ignorance. But here's the true repentance. True repentance is you turning over everything God showed you to everything that God is. He said, I don't want you to turn just a little bit over to me. I want you to turn your whole heart over to me. Repentance involves consecration. Repentance involves confession. Look what it says. He says, turn unto the Lord your God. Turn your heart over all your heart. With fasting. Now, what do you mean with fasting? Well, fasting was used and is used and is spoken of as a time under God's leadership. Now, listen, we only fast when God says to. When God leads us to fast. Now, I want to tell you something. You say, well, preacher, isn't it commanded that all children fast? Absolutely it is. You say, well, what do you mean it's under, only under God's leadership? Trust me, if you're right with God, God will have you fast. So what is the purpose of fasting? Well, the purpose of fasting is you giving up something in your life, food, drink, can be other things. There's other types of fast, but food, drink primarily. And you give up those things in your life for a period of time as God dictates and as God determines that nothing would interfere with you being able to hear from God. And God be able to get your attention, lead you, guide you, give you an answer to prayer, whatever it may be. But God wants to speak to his children. But sometimes our pleasures get in the way of us hearing. So fasting is a time where I can lay aside those things where it's just me and God. God's got my total attention. And here's what happens. In the context of this, fasting that God would show them what they need to turn from. And then as God shows us, what do we do? We confess it as God shows us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. So true repentance involves consecration. Me turning my whole heart over to him. True repentance involves confession. And true repentance involves contrition. Notice what it says. Weeping with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord. What does that mean, rend your heart? 
Well, in that day, there was a culture in which they would announce their public time of mourning or brokenness, and they would go out into public, and literally out in public, they would take their garment, they would grab it by the sides, and they would rend it like this in public, saying, I'm in a time of mourning. I'm in a time of brokenness. And here's what Joel is saying. He said, listen, God's not interested in you ripping your garment. God's interested in you ripping your heart. God wants you to rend your heart. God wants you to open your heart totally up to Him. God wants you to literally have brokenness over what He shows you. Weeping and mourning and brokenness. Kim Callahan. Every Sunday in that room, in that prayer room that we would meet and pray, every Sunday morning, every single Sunday morning, she prayed the same thing. And you say, what did she pray? Oh, God, would you work brokenness in us today? Listen, the church in America is so dried-eyed and tongue-tied. Listen, if God worked brokenness in us, it would change our churches in America. What's went on today in America? Has it made you bitter or has it made you broken? What I've seen for most people, it's made them bitter. Where's the tears? Where's the brokenness? Where's the brokenness that says, God, you're trying to get our attention. God, you're trying to get our attention. And by the way, let me ask you a question. Why in the world would God delay his judgment? How many agree we deserve it? Why would he delay it? Grace. He's trying to give people time and space to repent. Why would he give us a taste of it? And why would he warn us of what's yet to come? Grace, because he's trying to give people a time and space to repent. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8 and 9. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. Why was their heart far from him? Why were they drawing near with their lips and not their heart? Because they were not in a place with a broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifice of God, the worship of God, what pleases God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, will thou not despise? Let me tell you something. There's seven times in the Bible where God said he will not hear your prayers. Psalm 66, 18. If you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear you. Did y'all hear that? Say amen. That means if there's undealt with sin in your life that God has showed you, God will not hear your prayers. I don't care how much, how often you pray. In other words, repentance is essential for your fellowship. Seven times he says that. By the way, one of them is your relationship with your spouse. Read Peter. But when's the time God will always hear me? When there's a broken and contrite heart. God said, rend your heart. I'm not interested in you publicly rending your garment and giving a public show of your brokenness. He said, I want an outward expression, weeping and mourning. He said, but listen, a true outward expression is found in a true inward expression. God breaks you inwardly and then it flows out outwardly. I want to tell you something, folks. If these days don't break us, I wonder what will ever break us. Look thirdly and lastly, 
the motivation of true repentance. Why should I repent? Israel, why should you repent? To get out of judgment? No. So why should you repent? Well, God tells them. And I believe God's saying the same to us. Watch what it says. Verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God. What's the first reason that we should repent? What's the first motivation of true repentance? The word Lord your God, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, your personal Elohim. Listen to what I'm saying. It speaks of his covenant relationship with his people. When God saved you, can I tell you what happened? You entered into a covenant relationship with him. Think about it. The Bible says we were enemies against God in our lostness. The Bible says we were aliens against the commonwealth. The Bible says that we were wretched. The Bible says that we were condemned. The Bible says as a holy God, he couldn't even look upon us. And what did God do in his love when he saved you? He brought you into a relationship with him, a holy God, a love relationship a fellowship relationship, a fruitful relationship, an intimate relationship. God who needed no one and needed nothing would take a wretch like me and a wretch like you and allow us to have intimate fellowship with Him, a holy God. God said to Israel, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. I'm your covenant God who's placed my love upon you and placed my mercy upon you and placed my grace upon you and placed my favor upon you. And I care for you. Turn to me. Why are you comfortable with the blessings I've gave you and not comfortable with me, your God? Aren't you glad today we live in a free country? Now, listen, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. We ought to praise God every day's July 4th. We're not free on just one day a year, by the way. We live in a free country. But Israel allowed God's freedom to become their curse. And America's doing the same thing. Like I said earlier, did you ever think you'd see a day where we couldn't gather together to worship? Why would God allow that to be taken away? Even for a small period of time, two months. Some places it's still going on. Can I make a suggestion? Because we got so flippant about it. And we scheduled everything in our lives around coming together to worship. God says, well, since it's not a major priority to them, let me let them see how important it really was to them. The covenant of God. 
the character of God. Look at verse 13. He says, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great kindness, and repenteth him of evil. You say, God don't need to repent. He don't. So what does this mean, preacher? It means that God is waiting in his gentleness, in his mercy, in his graciousness. He's waiting to turn his hand of judgment to a hand of favor. He's longing to. Let me ask you a question, Liberty. What do you think God wants to do amongst us as a church family? Now, we can all go around the room and say, well, I believe God wants to do this. I believe God wants to do this. And and probably all that's true. But let me tell you what God wants to do. Y'all ready? More than you and I can ever fathom. Whatever you think it is, increase it a hundred times. That's really what God wants to do. And can I tell you, God's not up there wringing his hands saying, I, 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 I would, but I'm not going to. I would. No, he's up there with his hands open, wide open, saying, if they would just give me time and space, if they would give me affection and attention, he said, I'm waiting to pour out from heaven blessing that they cannot utter and they cannot understand. The character of God. By the way, the goodness of God is what leads to repentance. Now, what Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says? The goodness of God leads to repentance. Why should I repent? Because God's been merciful. God's been gracious. God spared you until you saved you. God protected you until he saved you. God saved you when he didn't deserve to save you. Listen, you and neither one of us deserve to be saved. But God did anyway. God's been gracious and merciful. Why should I repent as a child of God? Because God's goodness has been manifested over and over and over again. God's goodness leads to repentance. The compassion of God. Watch verse 14. Who knoweth if he will return and repent, turn his hand from judgment to favor, and leave a blessing behind, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. The compassion. Now listen to what Joel's focus is on. Not that God would turn his hand and leave them plenty on the table to eat. That God would turn his hand and what? Restore the ability to worship God with sacrifice and with offerings. But notice how he says, who knows if God. What is Joel confessing? Just because we repent doesn't mean God's not going to bring judgment. But here's the reason we ought to repent. Because God is a covenant-keeping God. God is a compassionate God. God is a graceful God. God is a merciful God. He said, and listen, who knows? Maybe, just maybe, God in His sovereignty will relinquish and allow us to worship Him in a proper manner again. Let me ask you a question. If God did not promise you one thing, for this, from this day forward. That he wouldn't do one thing for you from this day forward. But you know you're saved. Would you still worship him? Now, aren't you glad God's always provided for us? And aren't you glad his promises are real and forever? But what if? In other words, would our salvation be enough? To say, God, you're going to be the center of my life. No matter what you do or don't do from this day forth. That's what Joel's saying. Who knows? Only God knows. Who knows 
the call of God. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast. Call them a solemn assembly. Who's to come to it? Watch what it says in verse 16. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, those who suck the breast. Let the bridegroom come forth of his chamber. Let the bride go come out of her closet. Now listen to this. Boy, this will rub some people wrong. You're in the midst of a wedding. Here's what God said. He said, abandon the wedding, come to the solemn assembly. What's more important? Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep between the, the porch and the altar and let them say, spare thy people, O Lord. Give not thine heritage to reproach. What's the call of God? Come. Gather together as a body. In this case, as a nation. Come, gather together. And what? Solemn assembly. What does that mean? In brokenness, cry out to me. So here's what you're to do this week. I'm asking you. I'm pleading with you. Search me, O oh God. Try me. Show me. See if there's anything in my life, any wickedness in me, anything that's hindering my fellowship, anything that's hindering me being used of you. And then whatever he shows you, deal with it in faith and repentance. Lastly, the commission of God. What God called Israel to be? A people that showed forth to all the other nations who God is. Does that sound like the Great Commission to y'all? Israel was entrusted with the privilege of magnifying and manifesting the only true one and living God, the God of Israel. But if they've turned their back on the God that they're supposed to magnify, where does that leave them? Here's the last reason, motivation, why you and I should walk in true repentance. Because when we are not a repentant people, we lose our witness before a lost and dying world. Let me ask you a question. When we had those two months that no churches could meet, How'd the world perceive that? So in other words, here's what he's telling Israel. If I raise up an army, a heathen army against you, and they literally scorch the earth that you live in, and they take everything from you, and you now have to come under their control, what's it going to say to the rest of the world in which I've given you the privilege of showing them who I am? You say, well, preacher, what's it going to say to him? Well, God tells him. What God tell him? Look at verse 17. Middle of verse 17. O Lord, give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? Why should we be a repenting people? Why should we desire that God's favor, manifested presence, 
be real in our lives and our church life. That the world would see him. And they would not find in us any excuse to say, where is their God? By the way, Christ took our reproach that you and I wouldn't have to endure reproach. You say, when did he do that? On the cross. What did the people at the foot of the cross say? <laughs> if you are who you say you are, if you really are God, then you speak. You come down from there. Christ bore our reproach that we would never, ever be a reproach. So here's the choice Israel had to make. It's this simple. They could choose between two things. Revival that comes through repentance, through which getting right with God, they would be a people in which the world would see who God was. Or they could choose reproach. And in choosing reproach, they could live their lives like they wanted to live it, but now under the confines of God's judgment, and they would steal the glory of God away from God. So here's the choice, America. Repent or suffer reproach. I don't know about you, but I don't want nothing in my life that would take away from God being fully glorified through me. Do y'all agree with that? Say amen. Now, tonight, listen, tonight we're going to find out the manifestations of true repentance. In other words, what does God do in response to a repentant people? Oh, I want to tell you. It's glorious. So here it is. God's speaking through our times. So I want to ask you again, what's God saying to you? I wonder this morning how many of us be willing to say, God, I want to thank you today that the day of the Lord I'll never see for I'm yours. But Father, at the same time, I believe that you have spoken and are speaking and letting us get a glimpse of what is yet to come. In your grace and in your mercy, and in your love, you're given time and space. Because, Father, just to be true, if we got what we deserved as a nation, you'd already be pouring your full weight of judgment out. And, Father, the only voice, the only watchman, that you've provided for this lost and dying world is your church.
So, Father, are you finding in us a people that in utter brokenness over what you're saying in these days is willing to come to the pinnacle of the wall and sound the trumpet that Jesus saves and Jesus is coming soon. Father, let us be people that get in the flow of your gracious favor and your manifested presence. Father, guard us. That, Father, there'd be nothing in us that would grieve and quench your precious Holy Spirit. Father, positionally, every child of yours is prepared for judgment. But practically, every one of us, your children, when you say, son, go get your bride. You're going to bring us up into the clouds to meet our Lord face to face. And whatever is in our life at that moment, face to face, will stand before our Lord. Whatever our motives are, wherever our affections are, whatever's in our life that shouldn't be there, whatever is not in our life that should be there, we'll stand before you face to face. And we'll give an account through the Bema seat of Christ of what was done in our bodies. So positionally, every child of yours is prepared. Practically, every moment of every day you're preparing us. But Father, it comes down to this one truth. Are we open to listen? Is the trumpet loud enough? Are the times speaking enough? Is this the locust time in our life? Just giving us a taste what this world will endure. While there may be somebody in here today that they're not even ready positionally. And if that day came when the true trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise first, they will be not be numbered with that number. Maybe this morning you're awakening them to their need. But Father, for us as a church, work brokenness. Answer the prayer of Kim Callahan. She prayed year after year, Sunday after Sunday. Work brokenness in us. For your honor, your glory, and your namesake. In Jesus' name. And all God's children said,